Hey, South Bend City Church, Mariah here, the Director of Art and Worship. We're so thankful that you chose to join us, and we are so grateful that you're a part of our community. Speaking of grateful, not to be cheesy, but we're in week two of our series on gratitude. Before we get there, I just wanted to remind you that if you consider South Bend City Church to be your community, to be your home, you can give. It's through your generosity, both of time and finances, that we're able to do what we do. So if you want to give financially, you can do so by going to the link in the show notes below. That's just southbendcitychurch.com slash give. Or if you want to give of your time and you live here locally, or there's even a few opportunities through our communications volunteer opportunities that those that live long distance can be a part of volunteering too. So if that interests you, once again, head to the link in the show notes below under the volunteer section, and we would love to hear from you. So this weekend, we had the opportunity to hear from our friend, Mike Goldsworthy. Mike served as a pastor for about 20 years until he transitioned into this new opportunity in which he helps churches and church leaders engage with nuance and thoughtfulness in difficult conversations that they're often not having. Basically, he's a pastor of pastors. He also guides and mentors individuals as they walk through the transitions of deconstruction and reconstruction of their faith. And he works with churches and leaders who are finding new ways for the church to move forward in post-evangelical realities. Mike is also a part of our board here at South Bend City Church, and we love any time that he's able to join us for our gatherings. So like I said, we're in week two of our series on gratitude. And while many of us recognize that cultivating a posture of gratitude is beneficial for us and for our lives, it isn't our natural response and can oftentimes feel like a tiring burden to try and live into. So using Psalm 126 as a guide, this weekend we considered what it looks like to reframe the way we narrate and interpret our past stories, the implication that has for how we imagine our future and live with gratitude in the present. Finally, Mike offers us a simple practice to try this week in order to cultivate gratitude as a more normative and less burdensome posture. All right, it was a great weekend and we're so glad that you're joining us. Let's jump in with the rest of our community now. Thanks, buddy. Friends, it's so good to see you again. It is always genuinely a gift for me to get to um, be here, to be with you all. And I feel like it is a little bit of a prank to invite the guy from California out and then to be like, oh, our heater's not working. Um, I genuinely, I love this place. I love you all. Uh, a friend of mine was, uh, sent me a text as I was about to board the plane to come out here yesterday, and she said, uh, I hope you enjoy your time with your church home away from home. And that really is how I think about you all, uh, and I think about this place. It's really such a special place. And I don't know if this is true for you or not, but for me, as we're talking about gratitude, gratitude is not something that's natural and normal for me. It's actually a bit difficult. And I experienced some of that difficulty this week. A week ago today, last Sunday, my wife Allison tested positive for COVID. It was her first time having it. She's fine now. I think like she was probably faking it to get out of work for the week. But she tested positive, and there are all the things that sort of come with that when, when you have that now, right? That there's a isolation in the quarantine. Her family, uh, her folks had actually come out. They lived several states away from us. They were, it was in the midst of a visit with them, so we had to cancel all of that stuff. And then there's all the burdens that have to sort of get shifted around. So that happens on Sunday. 
Then on Monday, I'm working out of my house. I have a home office, and I'm working out of my house, and I go to have lunch, and then as I'm done with lunch, I go and grab our mail, and I'm about to head into a training, that there's this training that, uh, for a certification that I've been a part of, where we meet twice a week, and at the beginning of every one of our meetings, that the person who facilitates the training always asks, like, hey, what kind of, like, what are you showing up with gratitude for today? So the beginning of every one of these for the first 10 minutes that we're sharing about things in life, in our personal lives, and in our work lives that we're like grateful for. And so somebody might say, uh, I, uh, I'm doing this workshop with this organization and it's going great. Or they might say, I landed a new client. Or my daughter made the volleyball team when she was, that she's been trying out for. And they'll share those things. And they're like lovely. Like some of them are like big things and some of them are small things. And it's just, just like lovely practice. Well, on Monday, as I am heading to my desk to uh, turn on Zoom to get into this training, I'm walking over to my desk with the mail that I've grabbed, and as I'm thumbing through the mail, I sit down, and then I notice a letter from the IRS, which is always a good way to start your week. <laughs> and so then I open up that letter, and apparently in 2020, three years ago, as I became self-employed, that I had not done my self-employment taxes correct, and then there was a large number that I apparently still owe, which was greater because I didn't pay it right the first time. And it just kind of like hit me that it was like, oh gosh, this is a lot. It was a lot for us, at least. And then I, I had that experience, but I had to log in. So I log in, and the first words that I hear as I log into this training are, what are you showing up with gratitude for today? And I had some choice words for what I was showing up with at that moment. Because gratitude's not, for me, a natural reaction. And it's not just in those sort of moments where it, there's things that feel hard or that you're experiencing the junk of life. For me, gratitude's not a normal experience just in the normal, everyday stuff either. Uh, like, for instance, my family and I, we eat dinner together most nights of the week. And when we eat dinner together, we're debriefing our day. And my natural response in those moments is not gratitude for my family. It's not gratitude that they would share life with me, that they would open up in these kinds of ways. My natural response is often I'm thinking about something like, for instance, the other day I told them that I have this big meeting that I'm excited about, and not a single one of them is asking me about it. Like, why aren't they? And as they're sharing their thing that I'm like sort of sitting there stewing that like they don't like care about hearing my story. They just want to share their stuff. Like that will be the thing that will bubble up. Or, or like as I'm doing uh, a morning run through my neighborhood, my natural reaction is not to have gratitude for living in a place that has the kind of weather that I can do that year round. It's not to have gratitude for the neighbors that I have that we've got great relationships with. Instead, as I run, I might see a neighbor's house and I might think about how they put their trash can in my trash can spot this week, and I'm a little bit bothered by that, and I'm thinking about what time I need to put my trash can out the next week so that I can reclaim my spot. Or, or I'm starting to run through like what I've got to do later on that day. I've got the to-do list going on. I've got all those sorts of things in my mind that what I have experienced is that in the normal rhythms of life and in the disruptive rhythms of life, gratitude is not a natural go-to for me. And so I don't know if any of you experience this also, but sometimes, sometimes trying to move towards gratitude can feel like an overwhelming burden to me. 
It feels like something I try really hard to do, and it feels like a lot of pressure that I'm supposed to have this gratefulness. And at the same time, while I feel that pressure and that heaviness and that burden, I also recognize the profound positive benefits of gratitude. I mean, Beth did a great job last week helping us to understand a posture and experience of gratitude, the kinds of benefits that it has for us, the work and research that's been done on it, where like things like increased mental well-being and reduced stress, improved relationships, greater resiliency when you experience difficulties or when you have some sort of thing that you have to overcome or experience a setback, it even increased job satisfaction and even like uh, it affects our physical health as well. And so I see these, these sort of like uh, positive benefits that I want, that I know are good, that I see those sorts of things, but I often am missing it because it's not a natural reaction. And, and now um, Beth mentioned this last week, but I think it's important for us to mention again, we're not talking about a sort of toxic positivity in place of gratitude. We're not talking about the sort of thing where you force yourself to try to say this thing is good and positive and we don't actually engage in any of the realities of life. We sort of bypass difficulties and we just try to look at things with always with a silver lining, always negating the difficult. I don't think that we're talking about any of that, but I think instead what we are talking about is cultivating the kind of posture and response that looks at life as a gift. And I wonder if instead of trying really hard to pretend like that's true, I wonder if instead of feeling this burden like we need to make that be true, I wonder if instead that gratitude can be a sort of muscle that gets developed. And that slowly over time as we develop that muscle, it gets ingrained in me and it gets ingrained in me in such a way that I begin living out of this overflow of something that's at the deep well at the center of my being. I wonder, I wonder if that's a part of what we could experience and move towards. And so what I thought we might do with the rest of our time today is I want to spend a little bit of time with one of the Psalms. Uh, I saw a few of you showing up with some Bibles, so it'll be up on the screens in a moment, but those of you that want to turn to it on your own, we're going to look at Psalm 126. And, and I wonder if this psalm might for us give us a little bit of a picture of what this kind of experience of moving towards gratitude actually looks like. Now, Psalm 126 gets categorized by scholars. There's a lot of ways that scholars will sort of make sense of and sort of group psalms together. One of the ways is that they'll say there are these psalms of thanksgiving. And so some, some scholars will take Psalm 126 and say it's one of these sorts of psalms. And psalms of thanksgiving will oftentimes have explicit thanksgiving within it, that thanks God for doing these things. We recognize your goodness in doing all of this. Sometimes it's more implicit that there's a sort of like thankfulness undercurrent. I, I would say that Psalm 126 is one of the more implicit uh, rather than explicit, that there's a sort of like gratitude, thankfulness, like undercurrent in it. But there's a second category that this particular psalm falls within, and it's what's called the Psalms of Ascent. And the Psalms of Ascent is this group of 15 psalms, starting with Psalm 120, that the uh, ancient Israelites would use as a sort of like, I think of it as like a road trip playlist. 
that as they were living all over the place, there would be three times a year where there would be these major celebrations in Jerusalem that those who were able would make their way to. And as they made their way to Jerusalem, because Jerusalem was up on a hill, they were going up to it, so they were called the Psalms of Ascent, they would, with these 15 psalms, they would recite them, they would chant them, they would maybe even sing them. And I think of these Psalms of Ascent as sort of like their way of rehearsing life. It was this sort of way of trying to say, like, how do we want to show up? Well, let's rehearse the way that we want to show up. What kinds of people do we want to be when we get to this place? Let's rehearse what kind of people we want to be when we get to this place. And so let's recite these together. Let's chant them together. Let's sing them together. They were rehearsing the way that they'd want to respond to situations, how, how they might encounter God in darkness and in difficulties, how they might posture themselves as they experience joy and how they would like prepare themselves for those moments of joy. And so these psalms were this sort of like road trip playlist as they got ready to move into Jerusalem for this like time of celebration. And so Psalm 126 sits at this intersection of these two kinds of psalms, a psalm of thanksgiving and a psalm of ascent. And here's, here's how the psalmist begins. Psalm 126 verse 1. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion. Uh, can we like just stop there for a brief moment to recognize, because I realize in reading these words that there is horrific stuff happening in Israel and Palestine right now. And these words can be read in a way that we can sort of like try and modernize them and equate the ancient Israel that is being talked about in the Psalms with the modern day state of Israel. And what we need to do is we need to be able to separate those and to recognize that what the psalmist is talking about is not the modern day state of Israel. And so I think we just need to like kind of acknowledge that here as we engage in this to be able to hear what the psalmist is saying. So when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dreamed. Now, as many of you know, the ancient Israelites have a long history of ending up in, in situations of oppression and bondage and eventually being delivered from them. For 400 years, they served as slaves in the Egyptian empire, being delivered by God as they crossed through the Red Sea. And then you turn a few pages, actually many pages, in the biblical story, and then you find that they're being held in captivity in Babylon. And this psalm is likely written after they've been held in captivity in Babylon, where Israel goes through itself a, a horrific experience, an experience of rape in the streets, of neighbors being forced into bestiality, of a 600-mile forced march through the desert with their captors taunting them along the way. But this psalm, the psalm is written after they've been freed from that experience and as they return to their home. And it's in that restoration that the psalmist says, we were like those who dreamed. Now, the same word for dreamed here in the Hebrew can also mean things like being restored. It can mean being made strong. That there's something about the ability to dream that somehow is intricately tied into or a byproduct of being restored, of being made healthy. Because when you're in a difficult place, it's really hard to dream, isn't it? It's really hard to dream when all you can see is like what's just right in front of you. When you can hardly make it through the day. When the letter from the IRS shows up and it's all that you can think about. 
when you're in between jobs and you feel like you've sent out so many resumes with no kind of return or response, when you receive that diagnosis and it's all you can see, when you're just trying to hold your family together, or when you feel so lonely that you wish you had a family that you were trying to hold together, or when you've been abandoned and mistreated and you're just trying to make sense of it all, when you're in those kinds of places that to dream, to want something more, for your imagination to be opened up, it, it feels like too much, like you just don't have the capacity for it. But this kind of life that the psalmist describes that can see more, that can want more, this kind of life that isn't stuck, the psalmist is describing this kind of reality of of a restoration that moves beyond just making it through the day, a restoration that moves beyond just seeing what's right in front of you, this restoration that gives us the ability to have an increased capacity to dream, to imagine, to see what's possible. And in that kind of place, the psalmist begins to describe, this is what that restoration starts to look like for them. Verse 2, the psalmist writes, Our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongues with songs of joy. Then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are filled with joy. The psalmist is describing this like posture of gratitude here. The Lord has done great things for us. But here's one of the things that's fascinating to me about this, is that this isn't the only way for the psalmist to describe the story and to tell the story of what's happened. I mean, the psalmist could open up and tell the story in so many other ways. Like, for instance, maybe the psalmist could have opened up the psalm by saying something like this. We felt abandoned and we felt forgotten by God. And then it was like one day God finally remembered us and was like, oh yeah, I should do something for you. And some of us have begun the hard work of rebuilding our lives and some of us, though, are still a bit paralyzed from all that we went through. And then even a lot of us died while we still felt abandoned and forgotten. That would probably be a true way of telling that same story. Or maybe the psalmist could open it up like this to say, We often wake up in the middle of the night in a cold sweat. We question whether or not we should even bring children into this world as we live constantly looking over our shoulder, wondering when the next horrific experience might happen to us. My guess would be that that's probably also a true way that they could tell that same story. Or maybe even the psalmist could have opened up like this, that we were released from captivity But when we came home, we came home to destruction. And so now we have to rebuild and we have to start over. It's like nothing that was done before even matters now. I don't know if it's better for us to be here, if it's better for us to be back in Babylon. It feels like maybe we just got the best of two bad options. That maybe could have been another true way that they would have told that same story. And if we put ourselves in the shoes of the psalmist and we were to look back at what they went through and we were to write our own experience of it, there's probably a lot of different ways that we could tell that same story. All of those ways would probably be true ways of understanding and true ways of interpreting that same experience. 
I mean, when we do the work of looking back and reflecting on experiences that have happened to us, when we do the work of reflecting on the experiences that happen in the larger cultural context as well that maybe haven't directly happened to us, but we experience the shockwaves of it, when we do that work, there are a lot of ways that we can understand and interpret and tell those stories. But the way that we understand, interpret, and tell those stories actually shapes us. Uh, a friend of mine a while ago was telling me about something that uh, one of his mentors had said to him. A and his mentor is a well-known Christian therapist who specializes in abuse and trauma, and he was processing some of his stuff with this mentor. And the mentor said to him, he said, hey, one of the things that you need to realize is what you can actually change. And there's one thing that you can change in this situation. And he said, it's this, it's your past. He said, if you change your past, by the way that you interpret the story that you're telling, by the way you choose to tell that narrative, what it then does is it opens you up to imagine your future in a different way. And as you begin imagining your future in a different way, you're gonna engage in the present differently as you move towards that future. And so he told him the one thing that you can change is your past. There's a lot of ways that you can tell that story. What way are you going to tell it? There are ways that you can tell it that are helpful, that are empowering, and there are ways that you can tell it that are destructive and that are disempowering. And he asked him, what way are you gonna tell the stories of your past? This narrative that the psalmist tells as they reflect back on the past experience of their release from captivity in Babylon and their movement back into the homeland, it's really only one way of telling the story. It's a true way of telling the story, but there's a lot of ways that you can tell this story. So as the psalmist reflects back on this experience, I can't help but wonder, like, what kinds of framework, what kinds of questions the psalmist might be asking in order to uh, tell the narrative in this kind of way. And I wonder if the psalmist might be asking a question like this, like, what story is gratitude telling? That as the psalmist reflects back and makes sense I wonder if something like this kind of question might be guiding the way that they are thinking about that narrative. Because there's a lot of different questions that we could ask as we reflect back. I mean, we could ask, what story is cynicism telling? But we could ask, what story is victimhood telling? What story is supremacy telling? What story is defeat and dejection telling? And as we read through the Psalms, we're going to see different Psalms are written asking different kinds of questions. It seems that some of these questions may be what the psalmist is asking as they're reflecting back and making sense of what they have gone through. But in this one, in this particular Psalm, in this Psalm of Thanksgiving, in this road trip playlist that, that prepares them and cultivates them for how they want to show up, I wonder if the question in this one, as they look back and reflect, I wonder if the question might be, what story is gratitude telling? And as they ask that question, I wonder if it also reframes the way they think about the future. Because the psalmist in this psalm makes a shift in language at this point. From between verse 3 and verse 4, the psalmist moves from reflecting back, saying things like, the Lord has done great things, this looking back, this telling of what happens. And in verse 4, the language becomes forward-looking, begins to anticipate, begins to envision. In fact, here's how the psalmist would go on in verse 4. Restore our fortunes, Lord, 
like streams in the Negev. Those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. Those who go out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with them. There's this move that the psalmist makes towards anticipating. But notice what the anticipating looks like here, that there's this truthful telling of reality in it. There will be tears and there will be weeping. The world will not always be made right. Your experiences are not always going to be what you hope for and long for. What's happening in the world is not going to always be what is good and beautiful and what you hope for and long for. This anticipating, this envisioning doesn't negate reality. Looking back with the question, what story is gratitude telling, doesn't seem to mean that we only anticipate positive outcomes where everything is going to be good all the time. In the psalmist, in the psalmist, imagining of the future, there seems to be this recognition that there will be real pain in you and real pain in those you love and real pain in the world around you. But there's this kind of anticipation that something redemptive can happen in the midst of that. Something redemptive can happen in that place. Those who sow with tears, those who go out weeping will reap, will experience an outcome of songs of joy. Their return on their experience of pain isn't to get more pain. The return on the experience of pain is actually something redemptive. It's not a denial of painful realities ahead, but the psalmist seems to view those painful realities through this lens of this redemptive possibility of what could be of what might be possible, of what we might be open to having happen. seems to be open to this sort of a lens rather than a lens that just sort of spirals, rather than a lens that just seems sees doom, rather than a lens that can only see destruction as the end and only see weeping and tears as the end. There seems to be this lens that the psalmist has that says, like, that's not the end of the story. And I wonder why the psalmist has it and could it be? Could it be possible that a part of the reason that the psalmist would have that sort of lens is because of the kind of question that they're asking as they reflect back on their experience? As they make sense of their past, And through the narrative and story and the way that they interpret that experience of their past, that it then embeds in them in such a way where they imagine a possible kind of future where redemption can happen to the openness of possibility. Now, if you are like me, this sort of way of living is not what is most natural and normal. I mean, for me, the question I most often naturally ask is, what's the story that cynicism is telling? And for all of us, we're all asking all kinds of different questions as we interpret and make sense of the events that we've gone through today, as we interpret and make sense of the events that we've been going through the last several months, as we interpret and make sense of the larger events of our lives. And even if we were to think about the stories that have been passed on to us that happened before, like we were even aware of them, but they are stories about our family of origin. They're stories about our history. They're stories that have been passed on. And the way that we think about those and the way that we tell those stories, like they affect us. And there are a lot of ways that we can understand and interpret those stories. And probably a lot of those ways would actually be true ways of understanding them. But for those of us who want to develop our gratitude muscle a little bit, 
Those of us who want to see if we can grow and expand in that way a bit more and to like want to move towards a place where maybe that is a part of the deep well that's at the center of our being that just naturally flows from us, well, then maybe we need to start asking some different questions as we make sense of our stories. Maybe we need to have it become a bit more ingrained and more natural and normal in our lives, but for us to get there, it won't just happen. And it won't be just sort of like trying really hard to be grateful, but we have to develop it a bit like a muscle. And this is actually what spiritual practices do. In fact, my favorite definition of spiritual practices comes from this author and philosopher and theologian named Dallas Willard. Uh, He passed away about 10 years ago, but had a profound and significant impact on my life. And one of the things that he says about spiritual practices, he calls them spiritual disciplines, But he says that a spiritual discipline is anything that you can do by direct effort that opens you up for the Spirit of God to do in your life what you can't do by direct effort. There are things that we just can't do by direct effort. Like I would classify gratitude as one of those things. If I try really hard to uh, have this sort of posture of gratitude, a few things happen to me. It's short-lived, that it's like I can do it for a while, And then it feels burdensome, and it feels tiring, and it's like, this is not reality, and I kind of give it up. I can also move into a place of sort of the toxic positivity, where I'm just sort of forcing it, and I'm denying the realities of what's actually going on. And so what I have discovered is that gratitude is not something I can cultivate in my own life by just direct effort, by trying really hard. It becomes burdensome, tiresome, overwhelming, and it's short-lived. So instead, what I have to do is to figure out what are the things that I can do by direct effort, that would open me up to gratitude being able to be developed in my life. I think of it a little bit like this. When I was in high school, I played baseball. In my senior year, I was in a bit of a batting slump, that I was hitting the ball, and there were these little like ground ball dribblers that I would get out at first base every time. I wouldn't even like get a base hit. And so I go to see a batting coach to, and tell him what's going on, and he says, go in the batting cage and let me watch you swing for a few minutes. And so I do, and every hit is exactly what's been happening to me in every game, that there's these just like little dribblers. They're just kind of going off the bat, and they're not going very far, and they're not being hit very hard. So he pulls me out, and he says, okay, I can tell you exactly what you're doing. The problem is that you need to pull your bat with your left hand. I'm right-handed. He said, you need to pull your bat with your left hand, but what you're doing instead is you're actually pushing the bat with your right hand. And every time you push your bat, it's causing the bat to flatten, it's causing the angle to flatten, and that's what's like causing the ball to just go straight into the ground, and you're missing like solid hits because of that. And so he said, "Um, what I need you to do is I need you to start pulling the bat with your left hand and not pushing it with your right hand. And then he asked me, he says, do you understand what the problem is? And I was like, yeah, I understand. I've been pushing the bat with my right hand, and I need to pull with my left hand. And he says, so you have clarity then on what you need to be doing instead. And I was like, yeah, I have clarity on what I need to do instead. And he said, okay, go back in the batting cage, and I want you to do the thing that you know that you need to do. And so I go in the batting cage, and the whole time I'm thinking, pull with my left hand, pull with my left hand, pull with my left hand. And you know what started happening? The exact same thing that I was already doing. Like the ball just kind of like dribbling on the ground. So after a few minutes of that, he pulls me out again, and he said, Mike, the problem for you is that you, this way that you've been hitting that's wrong, it's so ingrained in you that it's just muscle memory. It doesn't matter how much you want to hit differently, you're not going to hit differently until you train your muscles to do something different. And he says, so here's what we're going to do. And he pulls out of his bag these straps. And he takes my right hand and he like straps it with these straps and Velcro and then he puts it behind my back. 
And he like straps it around my waist so that my hand is like tied behind my back. And he says, I want you to go out. He hands me the bat, go in the batting cage. And now for the next several minutes, hit with only your left hand. So I do, and I go out and I'm hitting with only my left hand. I'm doing that, doing that for quite a while, so long that I was like really tired swinging with only one hand. He has me come out and he takes the straps off and he says, now go back in and swing with both hands. And when I did, like I was starting to hit hard, solid line drives, the kind of hits that I wanted to have. And he told me this, he said, Mike, what I want you to do now is every time before practice, before you ever hit with two hands, you need to spend five, 10, 15 minutes swinging with only your left hand. Every time you show up for a game, before you get up to the plate and you're hitting in like that situation, I need you to spend five, 10, 15 minutes before the game swinging with only your left hand. And so I started doing that. And I would show up and it was a bit ridiculous and my teammates made fun of me. Um, but you know what began to happen is that when I got in the box to do the swing without thinking about it, my muscles were slowly being retrained to act in a different way. And um, not to brag a bit, but I did end my high school career with the highest uh, batting average on my team. So I don't know why the teams were not calling, but this this is a bit of how I think about spiritual practices, that they're this thing that we do that might feel a little awkward, it might feel a little strange, but we do it because what we're doing is we are retraining our muscles to like move in a different direction. If my natural bent is to ask what story is cynicism telling, well, then I'm going to have to retrain myself because if I just try really hard to not ask that question, to ask a different question, it will be short-lived and it won't be effective at developing this deep well of gratitude in the center of my being. And so what we want to do is we want to try some things that maybe would help us. It might feel a little bit like our arms tied behind our back because it's just a little different from what we normally do. But we're going to try a small thing that maybe can start opening us up a little bit more to develop that muscle a bit more. So here's what I want to ask you to consider. Is I want to ask you to consider trying a very simple spiritual practice this week. And we're going to put it up on the screen here. I'm going to ask you to just do three things. Three really simple things. So the first thing I want to ask you to do is to notice. Just would you open up your eyes this week with an intention of, like, I want to notice what's around me. And here's what you're looking for. Whatever captures you in whatever kind of way. You don't need to have a reason for it. You don't need to have commentary for it. What are you noticing? It doesn't matter why you're noticing it. What is sort of like grabbing you and what are you noticing? The second thing I want to ask you to do then is to capture that. Whatever that thing is that you're noticing, again, capture it without commentary. You don't need to make sense of it. You don't need to explain it. Just simply capture it. So there's a few ways maybe that you could capture it. Some friends of mine who do a practice like this, they keep a little small notebook in their back pocket, a sort of like field notes notebook, and they'll jot down what that thing is that they're noticing. Some friends of mine will use uh, the notes app on their phone, and they'll jot down what they're noticing. For me, what I do is I use the camera on my phone, and I'll take a picture of the things that I'm noticing. So we want to notice, we want to have some sort of way that we're going to capture that. This can just be a part of, like, in the normalcy of everything we're already doing. But then the third thing I want to invite you to do is to reflect. And this, this, is, this is where, like, some of the stuff, like, starts to get a little traction. This is where it starts to do something in us. And so would you set aside at the end of this week, Friday, Saturday, or Sunday before church, would you set aside like 15, 20 minutes, not a ton of time, 
just a little bit of time to reflect. And here's what I'm going to ask you to do with your reflection, is that you would look over everything that you've captured this week. You'd read through it in your notebook or through the notes app on your phone. You'd scroll through those pictures. And as you do that, would you just simply ask this question as you think about these events from this week, what story is gratitude telling? As I think about like what I noticed this week, what story might gratitude be telling here? As I think about what, uh, what I sort of like encountered along the way, what story might gratitude be telling here? As I just reflect back on just this week, and here's a couple of things that I want to encourage you. The first is that you don't have to agree with that story. Just simply acknowledge it. You might not be in a place where like, you're like, uh, that I don't like what that story is saying, and that's okay. Just simply acknowledge it. The other thing that I want to encourage you with is that uh, this isn't something I'm asking you to do with the larger, bigger events of your life. I'm not asking you to like, reflect back on traumatic experiences and to just sort of like on your own do this kind of work. If that's something that's a part of the work that you need to do, I'd really encourage you to do that with a trusted, wise guide, somebody like a therapist, to help you process that. Um, but for us, this week, developing a small muscle, just like trying it out in a little way that we would notice, that we'd capture, and that we'd reflect just on these small experiences this week on what story might gratitude be telling. And as we do that, I wonder if gratitude can start to slowly become something that we're not just trying harder and harder to do, but instead becomes something that slowly over time becomes ingrained in the deep well at the center of our being. And so friends, would you do me a favor, and as we close out our time together, do you mind standing, if you're able, as I offer a benediction to close out our time? And so, sisters and brothers at South Bend City Church, may you experience life as a gift flowing from the deep well at the center of your being. May you have the eyes to see what story gratitude is telling. May it open you up and open up your imagination to what's possible in you and what's possible in the world around you. And may grace and peace be with you. It is always good to be with you, friends. Have a great Sunday.